This is Behind the Money with the Financial Times. I'm Amy Keene. Some of the world's most influential financiers have spent the last three years courting Saudi Arabia's crown prince Mohammed bin Salman and the $300 billion state investment fund he controls. But the disappearance of Saudi journalist Jamal Khashoggi has turned the pursuit of trophy deals into an exercise in crisis management. Today on the show, how Mohammed bin Salman sought to modernize the Saudi economy with support of the global business elite, and what the future holds for deal-making with the kingdom. If you flash back to 2016, he was still a relatively unknown figure. There had been some scuttlebutt about a potential Aramco IPO, and the world was starting to get to know this gregarious, hard-charging, somewhat mysterious ruler from the Gulf. Arash Masoudi is the FT's corporate finance and deals editor. And then, out of nowhere, the Saudi Sovereign Wealth Fund announces a $3.5 billion investment in Uber at a valuation in the range of around 60, 60, 65 billion dollars. Uber is getting a three and a half billion dollar investment from Saudi Arabia's public investment fund. Saudi Wealth Fund Managing Director will also take a seat on the board as part of the deal. The deal solidifies the ride-hailing service's place as the most funded startup in the world. And that was a huge move because even if you remember two years ago, Uber was a fascination of the market. It was disrupting sort of how people got around. And we've come a long way in two years. But if you flash back to 2016, Uber was still a very, very exciting company that was really, really on the rise. And out of nowhere, this prince, whose economy is geared off of oil, and a subset of oil is obviously selling of cars, was backing a company that is very forward-looking and potentially was disrupting the sale of cars. So with the Uber deal, Mohammed bin Salman really launched himself on a global stage and in the head of the Sovereign Wealth Fund, Yasser al-Rumayan, who was to be named to the Uber board. Rush, let's talk about this vehicle that Mohammed bin Salman is using at this point in 2016 to make an investment like he did in Uber, Saudi Arabia's Sovereign Wealth Fund, What was it initially set up for, and how had it evolved by the time it's investing in Uber? Well, historically, the Sovereign Wealth Fund hadn't been a major player. It had been a very sleepy part of the Saudi sort of ecosystem. If you just think about an economy that quite simply relies off oil revenues, the most important company or thing in that country was Saudi Aramco, the state oil giant, and and possibly one of the world's largest, if not the world's largest company. But... What MBS, as he's known, Mohammed bin Salman is known, tries to do as part of his centralization of power around him and his efforts to reform the economy to oversee that transformation of his economy, he really brings the Saudi Sovereign Wealth Fund into a new league. He takes it from a sort of dreary backwater. He puts Mr. Al-Rumayan in charge of it, and he really begins taking a very hands-on approach to the assets it controls from other parts of the Saudi state, and to the investments that it does. And so that reshaping really plays into 
his broader goal of modernizing the Saudi economy and and the announcement of the Aramco IPO, which could have raised as much as $100 billion for him, was very much intended to go and fund the Sovereign Wealth Fund as a vehicle that would then go and pursue deals both internationally and a reform of its private sector domestically to wean the country off of oil revenues and introduce a new kind of private sector and a new kind of economy and asset mix. What was the reaction like in Silicon Valley? You know, all of a sudden you've got this state-backed fund pouring billions of dollars into one of the biggest tech disruptors. I can't speak to the reaction, but the thing that most people, the conventional wisdom that people thought was, this is in many ways dumb money on the global scene. And the world of finance likes nothing more than dumb money. It's sort of that adage about, if you don't know who's the worst player at the poker table, it's you. And so what that instantly does is it, it sort of attracts lots and lots of interest into courting capital when they see checks like that being raised. And everyone comes out of the woodwork. Now, perhaps the Saudis realize that because the next thing they go and do is to go announce the plan to put $45 billion into what became the SoftBank Vision Fund, which is the world's largest venture capital fund ever put together, which is led by Masayoshi-san. Mohammed bin Salman had flown to Japan with 13 planes and 400 people in tow. And while he was touring the country in his sort of fascination with Japanese society, he met with Masayoshi-san, the SoftBank founder and chairman. And a meeting of minds that began there in the summer of 2016 quickly moved into this creation of this vehicle, which is, as subsequently, as we've detailed them behind the money, really changed the way technology investment works. So quite quickly from what people perceived as dumb money, Mohammed bin Salman transformed his capital with like the largest check ever written to a private equity stroke venture capital fund into a powerful global force and really empowered Masayoshi-san to go on this spree of deal making. So $3.5 billion in Uber, $45 billion in SoftBank's Vision Fund. Can you give us a sense of how the fund, the public investment fund as it's called, can you give us a sense of the scale of its investments over the course of the last couple of years? Well, I think we should probably decipher between what's money and what's sort of assets. I think the Sovereign mm-hmm. Wealth Fund, as I understand it, has its hands on quite a few domestic assets, but hasn't necessarily monetized them. So there's a real focus on doing that. And that's been what they've been trying to do. They've attracted international financiers to come work for them. They just tapped the loan market for the first time, raising $11 billion from a series of banks in part because the Aramco IPO, the $100 billion payday that was once promised, is now indefinitely postponed, and MBS is talking about 2022. So that effectively means it's a long way out and possibly never happening. And so what there is is a constellation of assets that are clearly valuable and a ruler and a leader intent on monetizing those assets and doing what he wants to do with them. And what that means is that everyone in the world of international finance will do whatever it takes to get their hands on that money or take a cut of it. So you've seen Jamie Dimon of J.P. Morgan Chase front and center and trying to court the prince. You've seen Lloyd Blankfein. He's tweeted six times 
since March of this year. And Lloyd, in one of those tweets, puts a photo of him smiling with Mohammed bin Salman and praises him for his vision and how impressive he is. He's just absolutely smitten by him, which is code for Goldman wants to make money off you. You have Stephen Schwartzman of Blackstone courting Mohammed bin Salman at every turn possible, flying to Saudi, appearing on stage at this sort of inaugural conference next to Masayoshi Sun, the sort of coming out party of the Saudi Sovereign Wealth Fund, this quote-unquote future investment initiative conference, and with Saudi kind of announcing a plan to fund up to $20 billion into a $40 billion Blackstone infrastructure fund that would really help revitalize U.S. infrastructure. And then there's this whole just race of people, flights to Riyadh, full of bankers, trying to get mandates, and ultimately, almost all of them, waiting in vain for a meeting with with either Yasser al-Rumiyan or some official or, you know, very rarely with Mohammed bin Salman, just waiting and waiting and waiting, and many of them not getting the fees they once hoped they'd get. But the ones who really got there, Jamie Dimon, Steve Schwartzman, Larry Fink, who enjoys a very close relationship with Mr. al-Rumiyan, Larry Fink of BlackRock, they have access to some critical, critical information and I think see the deal flow much more clearly than many of their rivals. So you've got the the biggest names in global business gravitating to this one crown prince, likely, as you say, with a good sense of the kinds of fees and long-term partnerships that are to be made. Arash, this second iteration of the Future Investment Initiative Conference, it was due to take place later this month. What was that going to look like? Well, it was this FII conference was clearly going to be the second year of of this event, and you have to remember, a lot has happened in the one year since last year's event. You know, it feels like years ago, but genuinely, it was only two months ago when we broke the news here at the Financial Times that the Saudis had invested in Tesla, and it set off a sort of epic storm. I mean, one of the craziest business stories and sagas I've ever been a part of. So, Arash, do you feel like this tweet storm was in response to the news that you broke that the Saudis were building their own position. And that doesn't include Mohammed bin Salman's whirlwind tour of the U.S. in March and April, where you had everyone from like Rupert Murdoch and Bob Iger and the New York finance scene and the Silicon Valley tech scene basically rolling out a red carpet and courting MBS. With stops in New York, Los Angeles and Silicon Valley, Prince Mohammed is spreading his message of reforming Saudi Arabia from a closed ultra-conservative petrostate to one that's open to business and eager for investment. And before that, you had some more troubling events, including a crackdown on corruption in the same hotel that the event last year was held just weeks later. It's a shakeup sending shockwaves across the kingdom and the world. Saudi Arabia detaining top officials in a sweeping corruption probe. Where dozens, if not hundreds, of prominent Saudis and business figures were held effectively hostage in the Ritz-Carlton. The same place all these people gathered at last year and the same place they were due to gather at next week. And, of course, the Aramco IPO is just not not on the cards anymore. Saudi Aramco, the listing, the IPO that they've had has now been put on hold. The decision reportedly came after the king met with family members, business leaders, bankers and senior oil executives who urged him not to go ahead. The thing that every Western bank was fighting for, tooth and nail and sort of the biggest IPO ever that everyone had to be on, is now indefinitely postponed with serious questions if it will ever happen. (laughs) 
And yet, there is still this relentless desire because if you get your hands on one of these transactions, these are franchise deals for the banks. This is a once-in-generation shift in Saudi's economy. And if you miss out, you potentially miss out not only on that, but everything that follows. The relationships, the knock-on consequences. What if Saudi Arabia became one of the world's top 10 economies? I'm not saying it's going to, but what if it did as a result of this? And you were the premier international bank in that place. You advised all the corporations. You employed their best people. You provided the lending to the government. The opportunity is quite real in some ways. And at the same time, there's all kinds of political questions and questions about human rights practices in the country and the war in Yemen that everyone's largely turned a blind eye to and doesn't try to think about because the pursuit of money and the pursuit of business has superseded those concerns. It was just seemingly like, from my perspective, something was going to have to happen at some point, and, and it just sort of all came, came to a head in the last few weeks. We're following the mysterious disappearance of Saudi journalist Jamal Khashoggi amid reports from Reuters and the Washington Post that he may have been murdered. A critic of the Saudi government who vanished last week after entering the Saudi Arabia's consulate in Istanbul. He's not been seen since he entered the consulate on Tuesday. And there have been conflicting reports from Turkey and Saudi Arabia about whether he ever left the building. This continues to be a mystery, a very disturbing mystery, with international ramifications. And so with these questions outstanding, we've seen is this phenomenal withdrawal of interest from attending this conference. Jamie Dimon of J.P. Morgan, Larry Fink of BlackRock, Steve Schwartzman of Blackstone, the head of Ford, Linda Rothschild, Dara Khosrowshahi of Uber, in which the Saudis are an investor, and a whole slew of people have pulled out. And so... This conference, which was hailed as this sort of beacon and sort of Davos in the desert of, of elites and high-minded businessmen and prominent technology venture-type people, is now just increasingly looking deserted rather than Davos in the desert. And so that has created a really sensitive situation on a number of sides, both in terms of how business people with ongoing relationships with Saudi manage this and how the kingdom manages its own PR because it is, you know, quickly taking many steps backwards from the progress that Mohammed bin Salman had made in the last three years in terms of messaging and sort of courting the rest of the world. The rest of the world mm -hmm. was willing to embrace Saudi Arabia and was coming despite concerns about the country's record on human rights and so on and so forth. And now they're in this conundrum where it seems like what they're saying is they can't explicitly endorse whatever they stand accused of. I guess that brings us to the question then, Arash, of, you know, it's one thing for Jamie Diamond, for Larry Fink to come out publicly and say, you know, I won't be attending this event in Riyadh. But you've also laid out the perceived opportunity that is at play here in, in deal making with, with Saudi Arabia. So I guess, what does this all mean for the longer term relationships between Mohammed bin Salman, Saudi Arabia's investment fund, and these these American financial leaders? It's too early to tell. All the major banks that we discussed, they are all planning to send, it seems, some sort of more junior delegation because ultimately they are covering these people like clients and to then bail on your clients would be something that wouldn't really be kosher. So many of the banks are still sending more junior people, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. 
I think we're still at a point where it's hard to tell what the broader fallout will be. It's clear there's been an immediate fallout. And I think there's been a push for the Saudis to delay the conference. The Saudis are are staying steadfast that the conference will go on and, you know, there'll still be a premier event. But it's really hard to generate the same momentum they had a month ago going into the planning for this conference. And it really feels like a giant step backwards. In the short term, the picture is very dark. And in the medium to long term, it looks damaged, but not inevitably gone forever. So I think actions in the next year will really play a major role in how people evaluate the scenario. But what it has fundamentally done, and something we've talked about constantly in the due diligence newsletter I write for the FT, is this sort of this sort of conundrum between chasing fees at all costs and the realities on the ground. Business tends to want to look past politics because politics is always a nuisance. And you're, make, you're put in positions where you're making judgment calls on stuff that has real-world implications. So the business community likes to look past this stuff and just focus on making money in particular and sort of devoid of the sort of ethical calls. You know, one, one prominent uh, uh, legal counselor inside one of the major financial institutions told me it's a lot easier for us to be public on things like climate change or stuff such as that, but human rights is very difficult. And these kind of situations are probably the hardest for business to make a call on because where do you draw the line when it comes to these sort of matters? So we're really in a messy situation a lot of banks have fees to lose from JP Morgan and so on who are working with the kingdom quite closely. And uh, it's hard to see how it gets better before it gets worse in terms of the mess. Thank you, Arash. Arash has written an in-depth piece on the fallout from dealmaking with Saudi Arabia. You can find it on FT.com. And it would be a great help if you could leave us a review for the show on Apple Podcasts or send us an email about what you think we should cover next. You can reach us at BehindTheMoney at FT.com. And in the meantime, if you don't already have a subscription to the FT and would like to take a look at our latest new subscription offer, you can go to FT.com forward slash offer. We'll be back next week. <laughs>